Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Thanks, Joe. We're, um, we're going to consider those verses this morning uh, and what it is they teach us about Jesus. So if you do have a Bible with you, you can keep it open uh, and follow along as we do that together this morning. Uh, I've got a question for you as we start this morning uh, for you to consider, to, for you to think about. Uh, and the question is this. Uh, should God, assuming you believe he exists, uh, should God do something about this world? Should God intervene in this world? What do you think? Well, I'm guessing for most of us, the answer that we're going to have is, well, yes, God should do something in this world. I mean, after all, there's a lot wrong, isn't there? Uh, When we consider some of the big things in this world, we we see uh, slavery and poverty and injustice. We We see all sorts of brokenness and hurt. But not only on the broad scale, when we look at our own lives... There's an awful lot wrong there too, isn't there? There, There's illnesses, there's uh, depression, there's relationship breakdown, there's all sorts of struggles on the personal level as well. There is a lot wrong with this world. We need someone to intervene, we need help. Uh, Most of us would agree God should do something. But what? How should God intervene in this world? Uh, that's, that's a far harder question, isn't it? Uh, if we were to poll the room, if we were to poll our town, uh, I would imagine that we would find a whole range of different ideas on what God should do uh, if he was to act in this world. But what I'm guessing is that there would be a common factor linking them all together. And the common factor would be that if God is going to do something, it's going to need to be big. Uh, There's big problems, there's problems all over the place, so whatever God's going to do, whatever it will be, it's going to have to be big. We need a big solution to the hurts of this world. 
Well, those words from Isaiah that we've just read tell us that God has worked. In fact, that God is working in this world. That actually his intervention in this world is already in progress. It's already happening. Maybe that comes as a surprise. Maybe you think, I never even knew. I had no idea. Well, Isaiah said, that too is to be expected. Now, you might have caught that opening question, who has believed our message? What he's saying is, God's going to work in this world. God is working in this world, but no one's going to guess how. His way of doing this is going to be so strange, it's going to be so surprising, no one's going to see it coming. It's going to be an utter surprise. So what's he going to do? What's it going to look like? Well, that's what Isaiah unpacks for us uh, in this chapter and that's what we're going to see this morning. Our God is working in this world, that's what Isaiah is telling us and he is doing something big. Uh, right in verse 1 there, Isaiah tells us that uh, God's arm has been revealed. Uh, that is, all of God's power, all of God's presence at play in what he's doing. Something big is taking place, something special. What is it? Well, Isaiah tells us it is all going to take place through an agent that God appoints. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So what Isaiah is telling us is that God is going to work through someone, through a person. Now we might expect then that this person is going to be pretty special. He's going to be pretty impressive, pretty powerful. I mean, after all, we wouldn't want someone uh, to represent us who is weak or unimpressive, how much less God. But actually, the person that we have described here is very different, isn't it? He comes from an ordinary background, out of just dry ground. He's nothing but a shoot uh, that is small and weak. We're told there's no beauty or majesty or presence in him. He doesn't stand out in the crowd. There's no long line of people uh, wanting to be his friend. In fact, his whole life is tough. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This, this agent of God, this man, is going to suffer. He's going to meet a great deal of hardship. In fact, the most remarkable thing about his life is just how much he's going to struggle. And not only is he not liked, he is actively disliked, ignored, despised. How strange is that? <laughs> God is acting as we expect that he should, but he's doing it through this humble and low-key agent. Not through some glorious hero, but through a lowly and despised servant. I mean, it's just not how we do it, is it? Uh, I remember talking with a, a guy who used to be a gardener, or a handyman um, in the UK, in, in London, in a nice part of London. Uh, and he was saying how amazed and how refreshed he was uh, watching tradies here uh, and the cars that they drive. That, that might seem strange to us, but he was amazed that tradies here could get away with driving utes and trucks and vans that were old or a little bit beat up or a little bit damaged uh, and not brand new and shiny. That was incredible for him. 
Because he said that if you did that in the UK, in the, the area that he grew up, you would get no work. Because the clients there, the people that you were trying to have employ you, were so concerned for their appearance that they didn't want that sort of car parked outside their house. Uh, if you did drive that, you would have to park around the back if possible. I mean, who knows what other people could think? They might think you've fallen on hard times. You know, you had to employ someone who was cheap. They might you know, think that this car might devalue their house or bring down the tone of the neighbourhood. It might lower their reputation. You had to look the part. It had to be the newest and the best. Well, Isaiah is telling us God is not like that at all. God works through the humble, the low key, uh, the one who has nothing attractive about him, the one who suffers. And what we see is Isaiah's prediction coming exactly true. For God's servant, Jesus, came and he was entirely unremarkable. He was born to poor uh, young parents, a teen pregnancy. He grew up in rural Palestine uh, in a blue-collar family. His dad was just a carpenter. He had no fame, uh, no wealth, until, in fact, he was about 30 years old. We actually have no record of his life. It was entirely ordinary. Nothing remarkable happened whatsoever. And even after he got to 30, when he did gain some profile, so much of it was negative. He was, he was hated, he was mocked. Everywhere he went, there were people opposing him and angry at him. Time and time again, his followers abandoned him and even in the end, his closest friends left him. He suffered and as we remember today, he was cruelly executed. So the people of the day wanted God to intervene, just like we do, but they wanted it to be glorious, they wanted it to be powerful and remarkable, they wanted it to be someone or something to, to, to be proud of, to boast about. And when God didn't do as they wanted, they hated his means all the more. Now we too want God to intervene. We too want someone uh, to fix what is wrong. But will we accept it the way that he's doing it already? Will we accept that Jesus is his way? That the church, that Christianity, flawed and weak as it is, is actually God's plan to intervene, to make a difference? Will we accept, will we receive God's help, even though it's not glorious or strong or noble, even though it doesn't require us to you know, give all our best and everything, even though it's hard and weak? See, Good Friday is a challenge to us because it says God is working, God is intervening in this world and he's doing it through Jesus. And we can be a part of that but we need to accept him just as he is. Will you accept him as he is? Will you accept what he does? Because as we go on, we find out that not only is he, the rescuer, unusual, but we find out too that the plan of rescue that he is bringing about is also unusual. See, the way that he comes and rescues is really not what we would have had in mind, is it? Look at verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God sent Jesus to intervene in this world but he sent him not to uh, fix the system, not to solve poverty, uh, not to improve education, not even to go and deal with you know, the really bad people in the world. Instead what Isaiah is telling us here is that Jesus, God's servant, came to this world to work in us, to work on us. The hurts that we experience, the mistakes that we make, to, to deal with the symptoms but also the disease that's afflicting us. Now Jesus came along and said, the real problem is in you all along. The real problem is in you. Uh, when I was in early primary school, there was a bit of confusion about some of my artwork at the time. Um, not because it was so good, art is not my strength. Uh, I'm not a creative person, I'm happy to, happy to acknowledge that. There was confusion because some of the col- colours that I was using were just not quite right. Uh, my trees had brown leaves and green trunks. Uh, my skies were purple. Now there were some possible explanations for this. There, there's some things that could have been going on. It could have been that my classrooms had really poor lighting. Uh, I mean, you know, fluoro tubes, not ideal. It could have been that. Uh, it could have been that I just didn't have the textures I needed or that other children were taking the textures I needed. It could have been that I was just playing a joke on everyone and being silly. But in the end, as you might have guessed, it was none of those things. Uh, the reason for my unusual art was not my environment, it wasn't those around me. The problem in the end was me. Uh, I'm actually colour blind um, and I still do unusual artwork as a result, as my kids now correct me. And that's the case here too. Jesus is saying that the problem with our world, the problem with our lives, it's not the environment we live in, it's not the people around us, although those things contribute. He's saying the root problem is you. It is in you. That is why things are messed up. The words uh, Isaiah uses there in chapter 5, transgressions and iniquities, actually tell us what this problem is exactly all about. Because those words mean rebellion against God, uh, disobedience towards God, rejection of him. The problem is not living in harmony with God, not living at peace with him and the result is a world of hurt. Because we reject God, because we have a broken relationship with him, it robs us of our peace. It leaves us in turmoil and conflict. Uh, It leaves us wounded and hurt, uh, not able to function properly in this world. And it leads us to punishment because there is consequences for what we have done. And Jesus has come to dig to the root of all of this, as painful as that is, and fix us. Not only was I not good at art uh, at school, but I was not good at woodwork uh, either. Um, I lack any finesse when it comes to working with timber and for some reason all of my measurements turn out wrong. 
uh, and the cuts that I make are always just a bit more wrong than my measurements. And so one of the things that I learned in all my projects uh, at school was that it only takes one bad cut to really ruin something. Because the thing is, you, you, you make one bad cut, you make one bad measurement, you start uh, trying to measure off that bad cut and bad measurement and, and making everything fit, and it just gets worse and worse. I don't have the wherewithal to fix these things, and so it just becomes more wonky and more wonky, and in the end you're left with this piece of garbage that ends where all my woodwork projects ended, uh, in the fire. <laughs> the same is true with our lives. Once we are off square, once we are out of kilter, then the whole thing is off. And it gets worse and it gets worse and we compound our error. I mean, we can try to backtrack. We can try to you know, set things right by, by going back through our mistakes. But really, humanly speaking, we can only ever manage a couple of steps. And even that is agonisingly difficult. Jesus has come to do what we can't. He is the only one who can go right back to the root of it all and straighten us up and fix what was wrong and save us from becoming an utter mess worthy of ending only in the fire. And he does it by taking all our errors on himself, all our sins upon him. He does it by taking all our consequences, our punishments, and by him we are fixed. By him we are forgiven. So we're not told here that he comes into our struggle or into our hurt to you know, come alongside us and help us. We're told here that he comes to do it all for us. Now that's the language here, isn't it? He carries, he takes, he bears and he does it for us and for us and for us. When we look at the cross, not only do we see just how devastating the result of our sin is, but we also see just how complete his work of rescuing is. Now, as he cried out before he died, it is finished. The work that he has come to do, as hard as it is at the cost of his life, is done. And by him we are healed. By him we have peace again with God. Not only rescue out of our infirmities and out of those sorrows and things that were hurting us, but restored and made right with God. Not because we've fought well alongside him, but simply because we've accepted him in our place. He has taken all our darkness, he has done all we need, and in him we are free and we are fixed. Now some will claim that all of that is unfair. I mean it doesn't... Doesn't, it's not right that Jesus would be punished in our place. Uh, the, the words cosmic child abuse are sometimes used. You know, Jesus was robbed here. He didn't need to go through all of this. It was unfair. But our passage actually doesn't allow that. Look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. 
who was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Uh, It's remarkable that these words, even though they're written 700 years before Jesus' death, uh, were proved true in those events. Because we see these things happening and unfolding. Jesus was oppressed. Jesus was judged. He was killed alongside uh, the wicked, as we read, a robber on either side of him. And yet, despite that, he was buried in the grave of a rich man. We see him through his trial, silent, not because he's scared, not because he's overawed by what's taking place, but because he's willing. He's not arguing, he's not screaming, he's not protesting. He's not there defeated, he's there dignified. Not having been taken against his will, but going there by his choice. And even as he hung on the cross, powerless and weak, mocked and abused, uh, he's not there protesting. As we read, some sneered at him, he can't even save himself. When actually 10,000 angels would have answered had he called but he didn't. Quietly he went, willingly, like a lamb. But why? Why? I mean, it's not as if he's in shock here. It's not as if he's surprised at the turn his life has been taking. For, for weeks, months even, he has been saying to his followers, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, it's going to happen. It's not as if God the Father is forcing him here against his will. We see that wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, your will, I will do it. I will go. So why? Why did he die? Why, though innocent, did he go in the place of sinners? Why did he take the place of broken and rebellious people like us? Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? What is the one reason why people do crazy and illogical stuff? It's for love. It's for love. If you love something or someone, you will go to extreme lengths for it or for them. Uh, I noticed this uh, in Moving House recently. It is a great opportunity to find out how much you do or don't love things. Uh, time and time again, packing up, found myself asking, can I really be bothered packing this, moving it, unpacking it? Uh, And if the answer is no, as it was for many things, it is clear that I don't love that thing. I have no strong feelings for it. For example, our lawnmower. (laughs) Just close your ears to vet. Uh, Our lawnmower is old. Not old like cool old or valuable old, but just old, annoying old. Um, heavy, hard to start, really smoky, impossible to manoeuvre and did a terrible job. Uh, it was a bit broken as well. It, was, uh, it made some strange noises and it leaked more petrol out of the bottom of the carby than it actually used through the carby. The whole time you're using it, terrified it's just going to explode into flames. There's so much petrol all over the place. Could it have been fixed? Uh, look, I'm sure it could have been. It would have been expensive probably. Did I love that lawnmower? <laughs> not a bit, <laughs> not at all. And so I had no desire to spend money on it, less desire to spend time on it, and I didn't even want to use it anymore. So off it went. It's gone. Now the fact that Jesus didn't do the same for us, even though we were far more further gone than our lawnmower, 
is a proof of his love for us. See, we're, we're not, we weren't lovable. I mean, we like to delude ourselves that we're great, you know, a bit broken but still cute, kind of like a three-legged puppy. You know, okay. <laughs> but that's not who we were. We were angry, we were hurting, we were lashing out, violent, we were constantly rebelling. Not lovable, but despicable. Here's how Romans 5 put it. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us enough to bear our wrongs, to fix us in spite of our brokenness, to take our punishments. Even though rescuing us took his own life, he did it willingly because of love. 1 John 3:16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Good Friday says to us, you are deeply loved. There is one who wants the best for you. He wants it enough that he would even give his life to make it possible. You are deeply loved. And that leaves you with a choice. You can accept that love. You can accept this sacrifice of love that Jesus has made in your place and you can find in him just how deep and rich and wonderful that love is. You can find that in him you are restored to God and a love for God will be kindled in your hearts. You can know the healing and peace and restoration and forgiveness promised here. You can know a hope that lasts forever and a home in eternity, all through simply accepting this love that is offered. That's choice one. Choice two is you can reject that love. You can turn back from it. Uh, you can go your own way. You can keep trying to fix yourself or if that fails, paper over the cracks. You can continue in frustration and setback. You can continue knowing something needs to be done but forever being powerless to do it. Getting worse and doing so forever. That choice is before you on Good Friday. Accept or reject. Either way, God has acted. God has acted, not in the way you expect, not by whom you would expect, but he has intervened. He has seen the hurts of this world, he has seen the hurts of our lives and he has acted. And in Jesus he is saving and rescuing and healing and extending peace all through this great sacrifice of love that Jesus has made on the cross 2,000 years ago. As Isaiah declared, who has believed our message? What a message it is. Well, you can. You can accept Jesus. Believe him and receive him today, this sacrifice of love he has made for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immense love of Jesus that despite our sin and our rebellion, he was willing to bear our hurts and our punishment he took it all, even though it cost his very life. Also that we could be forgiven, 
be given peace, be restored and healed. Father, help us to accept him, help us to trust him and help us to come to love him more and more and be thankful for what he has done in our place. In his name we pray. Amen.